Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now, here's Pastor Chris with today's message. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged that we didn't have to hunt God down, but he knew right where we are. And hey, listen, he came looking for you. You didn't go finding him. You didn't have to, you didn't have to take out a wanted poster and try to find him. He's got your number. And listen, knew all of that when he saved you, if he had. Isn't that incredible that God would love us in that way? Hey, let me invite you to take your Bibles if you brought a copy of the Scriptures with you. Open with me to Philippians chapter 4. We've made it to chapter 4. And uh, probably another six or seven years and we'll finish the last little bit of Philippians. And maybe not quite that long, but... Uh, Philippians 4, we're going to just cover the first three verses today, and uh, let me introduce the message to you this way. As we begin this fourth chapter, uh, we see Paul turn his attention from, uh, from uh, maybe the tone or the emphasis that he's been on to a very practical outworking of that. He deals very intentionally and practically with what he seems to understand to be a, a great Perhaps even the greatest danger to the effectiveness of the church as it comes to fulfilling their gospel mandate. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, uh, Chris, I, you know, the effectiveness of the church fulfilling the gospel, that's important stuff, but that's not number one in my book. Hey, listen, it's, the, it's number one on God's agenda for his people. Now, you may, you may wonder how all those pieces fit together, but remember, the twin themes of this book, Paul says, is the gospel and rejoicing. And as we pursue the gospel, we find joy. And if we're really pursuing joy, we find it in, in fact, the, the gospel. So, he says that probably the greatest danger to a church's ability, its effectiveness, its, uh, uh, its, its possibility of fulfilling, carrying out its missional mandate is, in fact, this enemy right here, this great enemy may not be what you think. I mean, for us, it's not persecution. Paul knew what persecution was, but that's not what he talks about here. That's not the great enemy. It's not uh, jealous teachers. He's addressed jealous teachers, those who proclaim the gospel with wrong motives. And that, that's not the great danger that he speaks of. It's not even false doctrine. Doctrine's super important to the apostle Paul, but... That's not what he considers the great danger here to be false doctrine. It's not, uh, it's not sickness. It's not physical issues. It's not COVID-19. And for heaven's sakes, it's not whether we ought to or not ought to wear a mask. It's none of those things. When Paul thinks of the great danger, the greatest danger to the effectiveness of the church, he says it's disunity. In fact, He's already dealt with this subject earlier in the letter, and we saw it. We spent a good bit of time there in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. In Philippians 2, 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind and maintaining the same love. United in spirit, intent 
on one purpose. He says being of the same mind or unity is the idea there. The same mind. Now we use, we use multiple words in the English to communicate the meaning of this, but it's one word in the Greek language. It's the word phroneo. And it means to concern oneself with or setting your mind on or to think in a certain way, to have an attitude. It's like an operating system. It's not the, the facts of what you're processing. It's the operating system that helps you know how to process. He says, be of the same mind. This is a big deal for him. In fact, phroneo is a huge idea. In the, in, the Greek, in the New Testament, the word phroneo is used 26 times. It's such a big deal to Paul. Ten of those 26 times appear right here in the book of Philippians alone. It's such a huge thing. He's saying this unity or harmony among the, the peoples. Now, given the twin themes of the gospel that we talked about, the partnership in the gospel, uh, the rejoicing in all things, given those twin themes, isn't it a little strange that the great danger Paul revisits here is not doctrine, but it's disunity? I mean, some would say, man, as long as we get our beliefs right. No, 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 no. Paul says that's hardly ever the great enemy. The bigger entity is, or the bigger issue is unity. And further, as we look at this, you're going to see that Paul doesn't address this in some generic, vague terms. If I said vague booking, do you know what I'm talking about? It's when, it's when somebody puts up that cute Facebook status and they go, y'all know, so you can just pray. You know, and you don't know anything, but you just insert what you think you know. And they think you know, they think you think the same thing they think they know. So it's vague. It's just real vague. It's ambiguous. It's a, here's how Baptists do it. They say, I got an unspoken prayer request. Lord knows the need. Y'all just pray with me about it. Some of y'all know the need too. Y'all can just pray with me about it. That's some kind of weird, ambiguous, generic idea. That's not what Paul's doing. In fact, he gets so specific, he starts naming names in the midst of this. Now, you may be thinking, well, that might have made sense for Paul. I mean, 2,000 years ago, things were different, but we've evolved so far in the last 2,000 years. Have we? Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're thinking about it. You're going, surely we've learned to talk to one another when we disagree. I mean, surely after 2,000 years, we've learned how to seek and to extend forgiveness when wrong or wronged. Surely, Chris, uh, we've learned to set aside differences and to press forward for greater good over 2,000 years. Well, now, you know, it would sort of make sense that over 2,000 years we'd have figured out how to do that, but it's been my experience. That's not always the case. So if that's you, if you're going, yep, that's what I see too. It's not always the case. Then perhaps this letter and this message written 2,000 years ago to a church still has application for you and I today. We're in Philippians 4. We're going to deal with the first three verses. Let me invite you, if you're able, to stand with me and honor the reading of the Word of God. Philippians 4 and 1 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, 
I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul's right there. And Father, even in these moments, would you help us to understand what it is you'd have for us today? Help us to understand this enemy of disunity and the delight of our pursuit of unity for your namesake and glory. I pray, God, you'd have freedom in this place to speak to our hearts, to guide us, and that our response would bring glory to your name. So have your will and way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you for standing. You be seated. And uh, hey, listen, if you want to follow along on your notes, maybe on the app, I want to show you three features of this exhortation Paul gives uh, for us to see today. The exhortation to stand firm amid relational storms. To stand firm amid relational storms. If, you're, uh, if you don't have the outline on the app or you don't have the app but you'd like it uh, or you're joining us from home or something of that nature you feel free to just text the word notes to the number on the screen we'll send you a link and you'll have it right there on your device and you can follow along as well let me show you these three features number one the first thing I want you to see uh, to observe with me is the endearing motive of Paul the endearment that he has the love that he has the motive based on his deep and abiding affection for them the endearing motive of Paul now, verse 1 begins uh, with the word therefore, and you've heard many preachers say, whenever you are in the scriptures and you find the word therefore, you ought to ask yourself, what's that therefore? And you recognize that it's a transitional word, a connecting word that connects all of this argument, this statement he's about to make, it connects it to something foundational that he's just said. So the connecting point, the foundation for the teaching he's about to give us is based in verses 17 to 21 of the previous chapter. In fact, in 3, uh, 17 and following, Paul exhorted the church. He said, I want you to follow my example. I want you to come after me and to duplicate, to imitate me. I want you to live not as enemies of the cross, those who would pursue their own appetite as if their appetite, their desires were God. But I want you to live as citizens of heaven and to have a hope that's in Christ's return and allow that hope to permeate every area of your life. And then that serves as the foundation for what he's about to say. Because once he's completed that, he then turns to this very specific intentional exhortation of some prominent ladies in order to correct some dangerous behavior. But I want you to notice with me, before he begins to correct them, he first commends his love toward them and toward the church. By the way, that's a good rule of thumb if you're ever thinking. Before you start handing out correction or criticism or critique, you begin with what's right and what's, what you love and, and what you see and admire and have affection for. It goes down a lot smoother at that point. And Paul models that for us here. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, therefore, look how he refers to them. My beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul, is, as he's breaking out, as he's dealing with this here, he uses some incredible, personal, affectionate terms for them. He begins by referring to them as his brethren. 
That reminds us, it's a gender-neutral term, so it's not just for boys or, or, or just for girls. It's for boys and girls, brothers and sisters. It's for members of the family. It reminds us of the familial connection you and I have one to another in Christ. We were born into a family or born again into a family. We were adopted into a family. We became family. The way God thinks of us is family. We're not bound together by the uh, the, the provisions of a contract is written by an attorney. We're not even held together by the, uh, the tenets of a covenant that you and I might make with one another. We're held together by the actions of a father who placed us into a family together and the bonds of love which hold us together. Paul says, my brethren, you are beloved. That comes from the from the root word agape. Now you know in the Greek language there are, there are technically four words that are translated love in the English language. Three of those very prominent in the New Testament. And the, mo the one that refers to God, the one that, uh, that, that separates God love from love of cheeseburgers or God love from the love between two brothers, that kind of self-sacrificial, that kind of godly love is the word that's used here. He says to them, I, you are my beloved. Oh, I love you in the same way God loves you. My beloved brethren, I long to see you. He says to them, I ache inside with desire to see your faces once more. You know he's not there. He can't FaceTime with them. There is no Skype yet. Zoom has not even hit the radar. He's writing him a letter from prison and he says, I ache inside so desiring to be back in the place where you are so I can see you face to face again. Oh, I ache for that to happen. And then he says, you are my joy and my crown. My joy. Paul identifies there them. He, he says of them, they are the source of of his joy, that which brought him encouragement and that which brings him strength, that which puts a smile on his face through the tears, that which is a bright spot even in the corner of the prison. He says, oh, when I think of all of those things that make life worth living, you are it, you are my joy, church. Oh, he loves this church. He says, not only are you my joy, but you are also my crown. The Greek word Stephanos, it's the victor's crown. You remember in, in the Olympic Games, which began in this part of the world, in the Olympic Games, once the competition would take place, when they would crown a victor, they didn't give them a gold medal or a, a second place got a silver medal and a bronze. It wasn't like that then. Then you got a Stephanos, you got a victor's crown, one which said, you've competed and you've won. Paul said to this church and of this church, you are my Stephanos, you are my victor's crown. In other words, he's saying to them, when I get to see Jesus, you, church, in your life will be my glory. You are, in fact, my reward. Oh, I love you. Oh, when, when I get to see Jesus one day and he points around and he says, here's your victory, he'll be pointing at the church at Philippi. Now, that's such a beautiful picture, but it's not reserved only for Philippi. Paul uses just in the same way to the church at Thessalonica too. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Listen, you couldn't write a better love letter if you tried. 
Paul says, this church, you church, I love you. I have deep and abiding affections. I have urges and urges and longings to be with you. Oh, I miss you. I love you. And therefore, follow my example. I love you and therefore follow my example. Example in doing what? What's he talking about? What does he want them to do? He says, for you to stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Now, you know, I try to give you a little grammar every time we come together. And and you've heard me say before that when you find a verb in the original language, that's a big deal. If you find an imperative verb, not only only is it a big deal, it's a verb that ought to cause you to sit up straight and go, Jesus has got a command for us. What is it? The main verb in this whole text is right here. It's the word stand firm, stikete in the Greek language. It's, a, it's an imperative. He says to you all, I'm urging you, I'm calling on you, I love you, therefore I want you to stand firm. Now we've seen it before. Philippians 1 verse 27, Paul said it this way. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. In one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul said, oh, I want you to stand firm. Now listen, you don't have to get to firm ground. He's saying somebody's put you on firm ground. You don't have to claw your way to a position of stability. He says, God's already made you stable. Stand there. Stay firm. There's a picture that would describe this. It's a, it's a picture of a soldier uh, holding the line, the last line of defense. It's a commander saying, as the enemy crosses that ridge and makes their way down, as they try to go, you stand right there. You're the last line of defense. Do not let them come any further. You plant your feet and you stand firm. And the soldier says, yes, sir, yes, sir, I'll do it. And he, he, he locks in his boots and he holds his ground and he says, enemy, you can come as far as this, but you will not get over me and you'll not go through me I'm standing firm right here that's what Paul says stand firm in the gospel stand firm as he says to him here in the Lord wow what a big word he exhorts him to stand firm not in their circumstances or in their strength but in the Lord in the Lord that's Wow, that's, that means he's pointing their attention to something that transcends their circumstances, that's bigger than, than, uh, than their own strength or ability. He's telling them, I want you to lock in with Jesus and you hold right there and let that be the operating system that drives everything that you do in your life. And he, d- and he challenges them to this and does so because he loves them with a deep and longing affection. You say, well, Chris, it sounds to me like he's not interested in doing something for them. He's interested in something from them. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. He wants something for them because he loves them. But that also means he wants something from them because it's for their good and for God's glory. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this. And um, I, I don't know about you, those of you who are parents, but I checked and neither one of my sons came with an instruction manual. I looked, I checked, I even Googled it and said, I, did the, I think we've lost the manual. Could you send me the manual for unit one? And, uh, and nothing, just it was an empty search. It's like, oh, we've got nothing. Siri said she had no idea what's going on. 
They didn't come with an instruction manual, so Judy and I just tried to figure out how do we parent them the best way we could. So it may not be the only way. It may not even be the best way. It was just the best way we knew at the time. One of the things I always demanded from my children, from my son, is their very best. Now listen, we did that at report cards. Why did you want to do that, Chris? Because I was such a terrible student. Not because I was ignorant or because my teachers were incompetent, because I had more willpower than my parents. I refuse to study hard. So for my children, now that they're grown and just about done, I can just go ahead and say this publicly. For, for my children, I told them I want you to do your very best. Now listen, that means they were more than a number at the top of a test. If they came home with a 90, it didn't mean they were special. If they came home with a 70, it didn't mean they were average. They were not subject to the appraisal of how they performed on a particular test. The standard was simply this, is that your very best? Whether it was a 79 or a 97, the same standard applied. If they said, well, I got a 97, Dad. Yeah, but was that your very best? Well, I mean, I could have studied. Well, had you studied, you'd have done better, and that would have pleased Jesus more. If they got a 79 and said, man, that's the best I got. Well, praise God, you did everything you're supposed to do. How did I get that such a crazy standard? Do all things as unto the Lord. That's where I got that crazy standard. You ought to give Jesus your best. You ought to apply your best. When my oldest son, who uh, competed in uh, cross country in high school, and uh, he had the same athletic prowess of his dad, so it was a very small cross country team. But you get the idea. And uh, when he would go to meets and I was there with him, I would tell him before he got started, say, hey, listen, stay focused on what you're doing. And listen. Leave it all on the field. As you get out there on the track, as you're running that course, don't hold anything back. Give it everything. Even if you end up in a puddle at the end, I want you to leave it all out there so that you don't come back one day with regrets and going, my team could have won had I given that other 10% I kept in reserve. I wanted something from them, but I wanted it for them because who wants to have your child go, I almost made it if I'd just given it all of my effort. Paul says to the church here, I love you, I love you, I love you, so I want something for you. And from you, I want you to stand firm in the Lord. And he wanted that from them, not for his own sake, but for their sake. Notice not only the endearing motive of Paul, but notice secondly, the effective danger of disharmony. The danger of disharmony. As Paul is exhorting them to stand firm, you have to ask yourself the question, why is this the problem he brings up? Why does he bring up the problem of standing firm in the Lord here? What's the big deal there? Well, he tells us what the problem is. Verse 2, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. To stand firm, to follow his example is to urge them to live in harmony in the Lord. Now notice that word, he urges them. That's a word for exhort or, uh, or to press them toward. It's the same way the Holy Spirit works in us to press us toward holiness. He says, I urge you. And then it appears twice. You'll notice that. It appears two times in there. He repeats himself. Now the Greek language has got, it uses conjunction. So he could have said, I urge you, Odia and Syntyche too. But to add emphasis, he says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche. In other words, I want you to hear me and hear me clearly. This is a big deal. I am, I am emphasizing what I'm asking of these ladies. I'm urging them to walk in harmony. Now, here's two women that we've never met before. You could look back through all of your scriptures. You'd not see their names mentioned before. You could look from uh, verse 4 forward. You'd not find their name again. In fact, it's the only mention of them. We don't even know who they are. We don't know very much about them at all. But Paul knows them personally. And the church knew exactly who he was talking about. We know that because he didn't explain. 
He didn't say, and I urged Syntyche, you know, the lady that joined the church two years ago and sits in the back left corner and goes to Barbara Boone's Connect group. He didn't say any of that. He didn't have to explain who it was. They knew immediately who it was when he called their names. So while we don't know who these ladies are, Paul knew them, the church knew them, and there was a problem that everybody kind of knew about but hadn't talked about. These women were prominent figures in the church. In fact, some scholars speculate, and that's all it is is speculation because we don't know anything else. But these may have been women who were with Lydia when Paul first arrived in Philippi and went to the river and found them worshiping together, these God-fearers. You'd find that story, Acts 16, verse 13. But as Paul goes out there and he meets them, it says Lydia and, some, and several women were gathered together worshiping God, that these women were maybe some of the first pillars of the church there in Philippi. And he says of them, he says, hey, listen, I've got something I want you to do for them. Now, their names, Iodia, which literally means fragrant, and Syntyche, which means fortunate. This is sister smell good and sister blessed. That's who these are, Sister Smellgood and Sister Blessed. Paul writes, he says, I urge Smellgood and I urge Blessed to live in harmony with one another. I urge them to live that way. Well, all we know about these women is that they're beloved, they're known personally, they're known to the church prominently, and verse 3 tells us they've partnered with God, I'm sorry, partnered with Paul in the struggle for the gospel up to this point. So they've been with Paul for a while. He knew them. He knew their heart. They were active in their faith. But he exhorts that they live in harmony. So Paul also knew that there was something amiss in their relationship. There was some kind of disharmony between them, which is why he encouraged them to live in harmony. That term, that phrase, live in harmony, it's the same term we began with. It's the one we saw in Philippians 2.2. To be of the same mind, it's the same word, phroneo. So Paul says, uh, in the same way I urge you to be of the same mind, I'm urging these women to walk in, to live in harmony with one another. Now I want you to understand, when Paul uses it, this idea here, he's not trying to create uniformity, but rather unity. So in other words, he's not trying to carbon copy and say, let's have sister smell good and sister smell good 2.0. He says, let's have sister smell good and sister blessed, and they are to be in harmony with one another. They've got different tones, but played together, man, it's a beautiful song. That's the idea that's here. And he's trying to encourage that they come along that way. So he exhorts them to be in harmony with one another. Notice, in the Lord. Why did he even say it that way? Because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, they're to agree together and be of the same mind. In other words, it's not, oh, I'm in, I'm in perfect harmony with Sister Smellgood because, well, we agree on things. We both have elephants on our car or we both have donkeys on our car or we, have, we just have so much in common. We both love baseball. It's not like that. He said, find your point of union, unity in the Lord. Let them be harmonious. Help them to come to unity in the Lord, to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, we're not told what the issue was that broke up the harmony. But most likely, it's not some kind of an obvious sin or a big issue error. It's not something that's going to get them canceled on Facebook or anything of that nature. It's... It's probably not even a huge deal as it relates to their religious observance at all. Most likely, 
it's sand in their gears. It's, uh, it's just that little irritant that, well, it doesn't matter a whole lot right now, but if you leave it alone long enough, it's going to wear out the pieces of the machinery, and pretty soon it's going to break down, and the machine will no longer function anymore. And he says, I'm urging you to help them get the sand out of their gears. It may be that one of them had just a brash or caustic personality. In fact, on her social media feed, she might have just railed off against something crazy and then, and then ended it like this. Well, listen, everything I said was true. Other people ought to be able to just deal with it. If they can't deal with it, that's not my problem. That's their problem. End of story. Hey, that might be true, but that's still not sweet. You know that, right? Sister smell good didn't smell good when she put that on her Facebook page. And it creates some kind of a disconnect between these two sisters. In other words, there's a problem now and these two sisters struggling with that problem have now become distracted from doing the best things and they're more concerned with the problem that they have and they've drugged their connect groups into it with them. Now, that doesn't happen in modern times. This is only then. But sometimes it's happened to me. So I know this doesn't apply to any of you. But let me just say to you, sometimes people will say things. Can I just tell you that? Sometimes people say stuff to me, and they probably don't mean harm by it. But sometimes it just hits me sideways. Now, I know that's never happened to y'all because you're spiritual. Nobody's ever said anything to you that you took and said, what were you thinking? I mean, that's never happened. But when that happens to me in my unspiritual side, when that happens to me, here's what happens to me. I start replaying the conversation over and over in my head. Thinking about all the stuff I wished I'd said. Checking my pulse because it's going up now. I'm starting to break out in a sweat. I've worked up a good lather. In fact, not only have I thought about what I wished I'd said, I thought about what they said again and what they would have said if I'd have said what I wished I'd said. Now I'm into a full-fledged ready-to-fight and they're not even in the conversation. I'm distracted wondering about this disagreement and, and, and they're not even in the room. Have you ever done that? No, of course you haven't done that. I'll just confess more. This time I'll confess on my wife. That way it'll go well for me at lunch. I've had Jody wake up from a dead sleep and be ill with me. And I'm like, what? It's like seven in the morning. I haven't done anything yet. What are you ill about? I had a dream about you. And this is what you did in that dream. And you said this, and then I said this, and then you said this, and then I said this. And I'm going to tell you, you're just, whoa. And by the way, it took time to calm down from that. I'm like, it was a dream. I wasn't even there. But you're still mad. I still got to go buy flowers and candy. I wasn't even there. Little sand in the gears. It's not some big sin. It's not, it's sand in the gears. But it becomes a distraction. When they went back to their connect groups, they started talking about it. Sister Smell Goods Connect group heard her and they said, oh, bless your heart, sister. We've all been there. We're going to pray for Sister Blessed. We know how blessed she is. And, uh, and then Sister Blessed's friends over here doing this. And now you wouldn't know because everybody's in church together. So you wouldn't know there's actually a disagreement except when they see each other coming down the hall, they just start talking to somebody else. Or... They go to pass each other, these connect group members, they pass each other in food line and one of them's coming down the bread aisle and the other one starts up the bread aisle and sees them and says, oh, I'm not talking to her, she's Sister Smell Good's friend. And so you just go around and get some potato chips instead. Now again, y'all don't know anything about that, but other people have reported these things. 
sand in the gears. Paul said this is more dangerous than bad doctrine because of the distraction. Well, you say, Chris, I, a little distraction is not a big deal. Let me ask you a question. If you were having surgery, how distracted would you tolerate your surgeon to be? I mean, if he's 20% distracted, you'd be all right with that? I mean, he's coming in there to remove your gizzard. And he's 20% distracted. Or she's 10% distracted. She's, she's just a little bit distracted. She's, she's, she's just checking her Facebook while she's supposed to be over here rearranging your innards. Are you okay with it? 1%. No, you wouldn't be distracted. You'd be like, I want you locked on. By the way, that's just physical health. Paul's talking about the mission of the gospel and the glory of Christ. He's saying this distraction would, would, would so undermine what God wants to do for His glory. It's a great danger. Therefore, we can't allow this to persist. It's not only the endearing motive of Paul and the effective danger of disharmony, but notice he expresses to us the expressed responsibility of family. See, now he gets to our part. The expressed responsibility of family. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also... To help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul says, uh, church family, I want you to do something. He addresses a third person we've never met before, a person that he identifies only as true companion. It translates literally yoke fellow or fellow worker. And uh, grammatically, it's... Uh, it's what we know in the language as evocative of address. In other words, it's a, it's a substitute word. So rather than using the word, rather than saying Frank, when I forget Frank's name, I go, hey, brother. When I say brother, Frank knows I'm talking to him because I'm looking at him and I'm, he's the only guy in the room. I say, brother, and Frank knows. It's evocative at that point. That's the idea here. So he says, I'm telling you, true worker, fellow worker, co-worker, uh, yoke fellow, You've got to help. Now, you may say, well, why didn't Paul, I mean, he called out Sister Smellgood, Sister Blessed. Why didn't you just give us the name of this person? Y'all probably don't think about things like that. But sometimes I wonder, well, why did God say that? Or why didn't God say this? Here's, here's, here's my sanctified, maybe, imagination. I think he left it ambiguous so you and I could find our part in the story. See, by not mentioning a name, you might insert your name. And Paul simply says to him, indeed, true companion, indeed, Chris, I ask you to help these women who've shared my struggle. Now, as you look at this here, he's saying to the church, to the family, you have a role to play in this sand in the gear situation. You're not to be passive. He's giving you an instruction. You must do something with it because... If you don't, they'll not get over it. Did you know sometimes relational issues take a little bit to get over? Now, here's what that looks like in the pastor's office. Now, not here because, you know, it was, it's another church where I served. What sometimes people go and I'll, I'll see, I'll say, hey, sister, smell good. I, is everything okay with you and sister blessed? Is everything going all right there? Oh, we're fine. Well, I heard y'all had kind of rubbed wings a little bit. I'm just making sure everything's good. Oh, everything's good. I turned it over to the Lord. Well, good. She's coming in the room. I'm going out the back. <laughs> it doesn't sound so good. Now, why don't y'all just get that figured out? Hey, I've just put it under the blood. I'm good. Just good. 
Are you really good? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. In Jesus' name, I'm good. Nope. What? what listen, here's what she needs. She needs somebody to come in there and go, no, something's not right. Something's still hitting on seven out of eight cylinders. Come on, sister, smell good. So we can keep you smelling good. And sister, blessed, so you'll stay fortunate. Come on. Let's, let's figure out how to work this thing out. That's exactly what Paul calls his true companion, Yokefellow. It calls you and I, the church, to do. Now, I think it's important for you, you and I to grasp this idea here. First of all, that the community has a responsibility to help them. In other words, God's given the community a responsibility. He's not left it up for whether the sisters won't help or whether somebody wants to get up in their business. He said the community has a responsibility. Hey, true companion, yoke fellow, I ask you also to help these women. And it's important to note that the issue here doesn't appear to be an issue of salvation. It's an issue of fellowship. He says their names are written in the, in the book of life. So he's not saying one of these little sisters is lost as a goose. She may smell good, but she's not a Christian. He doesn't say that. It's not an issue of whether they're Christians or whether they've been saved. The issue is the fact that they're at odds with one another. And as he's instructing his true companion, as he's instructing you and I, you and I might even resist along the way, and we've got different reasons why we might resist. Let me give you just a couple that I thought of, and then we'll just be done. I think sometimes people are uncomfortable getting involved because, well, they might say to me, well, you know, Chris, it's just not wise to get in, to butt into other people's business. Hey, that's true. In fact, the writer of Proverbs said, one of my favorite Proverbs, don't walk down the street and grab your neighbor's dog by the ear. It'll bite you. You ought not mess with it. You ought not get involved in somebody else. I get that. I get that. But now he's not talking about perfect strangers or talking about your neighbor. He's talking about family. And in family, he tells us to do something different here. So it may not be wise, but that's with your neighbor. With family, it's required. Maybe you'd say, well, I have my own issues. And how you know the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. So who am I to tell them they need to get their stuff together? I got my own problems. Yeah, but. Listen, don't make it about you. We're not talking about your problems right now. We're talking about Sister Smellgood's problems and Sister Blessed's problems. We've got to help them through their stuff. We'll get to you in a minute. It may take a minute to work on your stuff. So it's not about that. It's about helping them get over them. That's the presenting issue. Well, you know, Chris, I'm, a, I'm kind of uncomfortable uh, inserting myself into their situation. After all, we're, I'm friends with both of them. I'm uncomfortable with that. Friend, let me just say to you. Most everything God's ever done of any significance in my life has involved a high degree of discomfort. God hardly ever recruits me for the comfortable. I usually find that on my own. He hardly ever sits down and says, well, now, Chris, I've got something I want you to do. And I go, man, that's going to be so awesome. I'm usually like, Lord, I don't think I can do that. And he goes, that's right. That's what I'm going to do through you. Or maybe you say, well, I talked to Sister Smellgood, but, you know, she probably won't listen anyway, so I think I'll just pray about it. Praying's good, but he instructs us to get involved and help sort through the issue. All of these excuses, if you will, or explanations may be true, but God said in his word, you don't get the choice. You must. Your family, family has to get involved. I can't imagine my mom. I mean, I grew up as one of four kids and uh, the oldest and best looking of all of them, of course. So uh, I grew up in that kind of a situation, but occasionally they would rebel and resist against stuff like that. I can't imagine my mom going, well, it's just who am I to get involved? No, she'd set us down. If we've got real obstinate, she'd say, hold hands. I ain't holding that boy's hand. Oh, yes, you are. I'll, 
whoop you. <laughs> so you see, with family, you don't get the option. And that's what he's saying here. Y'all, you have to get involved. Because you and I are the help God's designed to restore fellowship and to accelerate the mission. Have you ever wondered, I'm going to close on this. Have you ever wondered if relationships aren't that big of a deal, why did Jesus focus on it so much? In fact, Jesus tied our relationships with people to our ability to relate to God. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and help him get over it, get through it. If you can't get through it, take a partner and y'all go help him get through it. If, if the two of y'all can't do it, then bring it before the church. But whatever you do, help him get through this thing. Matthew 5, he says, if you're on the way to the altar, you're on the way to make your sacrifice. You're on the way to, to, to worship God. And the Holy Spirit brings to mind something somebody's got against you because you was a buzzard on Facebook or something. Stop. Don't even go there and make your sacrifice. Leave it set right there. Go find your friend. Make up with them. Then come back and make your offering. Why? Because you can never be right with God this way if you're at odds with people this way particularly those in your family. And he ties those two things together because oftentimes we get distracted by the stuff that happens on this plane and it keeps us from being effective on this plane. So Paul says, y'all have got to help Iodia. And said, I say I have a hard time saying those names. You got to help sister smell good and sister blessed. Y'all have to because they'll not get out of this one by themselves. And by the way, they don't have to because I, get, I put you there to help them. Here's a question. Have you ever recognized in your life, or maybe you'd recognize now, hey, I've got some sand in my gears with a relationship with somebody. Here's a question. What will you do about it? Well, I can't fix that, Chris. I know, but could God fix it if you asked him to? Would God fix it if you volunteered and offered it to him? Would you do it because it's important? Well, sure I would, yeah. Okay, next question. In your connect group, do you see two people that's got a little sand in their gears? Would you do what God instructed you to do to help them sort through that? Well, I just don't want to get, I know we covered that already, but God said you had to anyway, so would you? See, it's an issue of obedience, it's discipleship, it's biblical. Would you do that? I know it's uncomfortable, I know it's not... But that's what he's called us to. Why? Because he wants us to be unified. Well, how am I ever going to find the strength to do the uncomfortable or to forgive when somebody's thrown sand in my gears? And so how am I ever going to do that? I can't speak for anybody else, but I've been beating up on me. So let me just take one more whack at it. Whenever I start trying to find out, can I get the strength in order to do that for somebody else? Can I find it within me to forgive them? God's taught me to go back and look at what he forgave me for. See, when I look back and I think, well, you know, they just snubbed me in that way or they said this out of the way thing or they just did this thing that was mean or they did this insensitive thing. That's terrible of them. It's wrong. It's terrible. But man, I've done a thousand times more to Jesus and he didn't wait for me to come begging. He came running. And he didn't wait for me to make amends. He made forgiveness possible. And he didn't say, Chris, get your act together. He said, Chris, take my act for yourself. Take my righteousness on you and accept the settlement for your sinfulness in me. See, 
trying to get things right like this will never happen if you haven't first experienced rightness with God. That's where the strength comes from. But I'm here to say to you today, if you've never experienced this, if you left today saying that, it would only be because you resisted what God wanted to do. Because you know what God really wants to do? This is what Jesus said he came. He said, I didn't come to find well people. I came to find sick people. He didn't say, I didn't, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came that the world through me might be saved. Jesus wants you to be right with him. No matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've done it. It doesn't matter how huge of a thing it was. If you'd receive it, Christ would forgive it. And he'd start you fresh today. And in that would be the first step toward fixing all of the other stuff. Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. This is Pastor Chris, and I pray that the message you've just heard has been a blessing to you directly from the heart of God. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at englewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us to reach a wider audience with a life-changing message of hope in Jesus Christ. We hope you'll join us again next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.